0: Sure she is strong she is strong she is true she is true she is brave she is bold she is you she is you she is sure she is strong she is strong she is true she is true she is brave she is brave she is bold she is bold she is you hi everyone
1: This is Erin Prather-Stafford with the Girls That Create podcast on Word of Mom Radio. My guest today is Christine Hortzman, a life and career coach and a professional development instructor. Her specialty is emotional intelligence and communication skills, and she is an expert in the DISC model of human behavior and personality strengths. Her book, Deal With It Doll, Coaching Yourself Through Crisis, was born out of the collective health crisis we all experienced due to COVID. It is a literary toolbox written to help others deal with not just health challenges, but the transitions and changes, both big and small, that we all go through in life. In the book, Hortzman has a section that dives into parenting, and I'm delighted to chat with her about the impact of the child-parent relationship. Quick note, this episode was taped right before Hortzman's son graduated high school. Welcome to Girls That Create, Christine Hortzman. Thanks for having me. I want to start off with a line I really love in your book is that for adults, childhood is one thing we all have in common. We were all kids at one point. You know, even if you don't have a child, remembering what it was like to be a child is really actually quite powerful, especially when you're interacting with kids in your life. And, you know, I want to kind of talk about this idea about helping kids, you know, we're usually being very future focused, I feel, when we're interacting with them. And I just kind of hear your thoughts to start off with about being in the present, accepting them for who they are at this moment, understanding that you don't have to have their life paved out for them from the beginning, although it can be kind of feel like you you want to, but you need to kind of let go of that desire.
2: Yeah, absolutely. My son is graduating high school this May. And in, in this moment of that, of looking at the next chapter and what's it going to bring and trying to help and guide but so let it be his process and I can remember looking at preschools and like the insane amount of pressure I mean I almost feel like it may have felt like worse than the college because <laughs> like, your first experience with schooling and things other parents would tell you and just this pressure of achievement that like oh, you don't get him into the right preschool now forget it you know like it's a domino for the whole rest of their lives so I do think we absorb a lot of this feeling of pressure. And it's an achievement-oriented culture. It is. I mean, there's really no way around it. I keep thinking about the CDC report that you had shared with me about the state of mental health for kids, particularly for young girls. And I keep thinking to myself, our kids are tired. When I think back to my childhood, I was active and involved. I played sports. I think I had a lot more downtime than a lot of kids do now. And so I think that's one of those pieces of we take that big step back and think about what do we love about our childhoods and our adolescence. It wasn't being in the car all the time and schedule, 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 and, you know, studying for AP exams. Those weren't our favorite moments. Some may have been necessary. Some may have been valuable, but I worry that our kids are overscheduled.
1: I know in the book you also mentioned this idea of learned helplessness. I thought that was an interesting Mm way, phrasing that concept or idea. Can you kind of expand on what that is and how that can actually come back to haunt parents down the road?
2: So this idea of learned helplessness, it comes out of kids with special needs. Some people don't like that term anymore, but for kids who have delays or certain kinds of disorders. My son at the time experienced some delays, some motor delays and speech delays. All of which, you know, we worked on and worked out and got him caught up. But you learn about this concept of learned helplessness. So if a child, like in my kiddo's case, couldn't button his coat because it's a fine motor delay, I'm ready to jump in and button his coat. And sometimes I'm ready to jump in so that it's not as obvious to other people where he's struggling to sort of make it a little bit more comfortable for him or not call attention to it. And it has its place for mom to jump in and help. But ultimately, our goal is to give him the skills he needs in the way that he learns in his own pace, right, or her or theirs. And one of the things that some modern parenting is it's the idea of helicopter parenting or snowplow or of, like, we're coming in and we're trying to pave the way for them. We want to make it easier. We want to prevent pain, suffering, discomfort. Sometimes it's our own fears of failures, our own bad experiences haunting us. But if we are always stepping in, that's how we're teaching this idea that I can't do it myself. That's the concept of learned helplessness. So we send inadvertently, oftentimes with all the love we need, unintentionally a message, I don't think you're capable. Sometimes too the is I don't really trust you or you're not going to do it good enough. And in a child's mind, that can start to translate into, I am not good enough. And so it's something that modern parents need to be careful of, even if you don't have a child who's struggling with any delays or challenges, because that need to step in, make it perfect, do it faster, we can be inadvertently teaching this concept to our kids. I think the do it
1: faster is a real challenge, because we're also rushed on our time. We're trying to get out the door. We're yeah. trying to get to work. and. Wow. How long are you taking to tie your shoes? Okay.
2: <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. When walking down the street with a toddler <laughs> like it could take 20 minutes to go two minutes, right? Because they're curious. And, <laughs> and so some of it is, again, it's kind of like the eye on the prize of the long-term goals. In those moments where, as a parent, you start to feel frustrated, or your patience is wearing thin, or you feel self-conscious or embarrassed over sort of where your kiddo might be developmentally or worried or whatever the case may be.
1: You have a story that I've cracked up about, about your son and basketball shorts. Can you share that? Oh. About- oh, I think
2: it was, a, yeah, the school uniform shorts. So I he went to a private school that focused on learning differences and helping him. And I picked him up from school. And this was, it must have been like early middle school, like probably like sixth, seventh grade, something like that. Fits somewhere in there. And I picked him up for school and he had the goofiest look on his face and his sweatshirt was kind of pulled down and I said what's up and he looked and he said look and he pulled up his sweatshirt and his shorts were like this like they weren't all the way zippered up or however he had the sweatshirt coming I said what in the world he said I forgot my shorts today they had had basketball practice in the morning for middle school and he forgot his uniform shorts and he was getting ready and you know the bell's going to ring soon and he kind of freaked out and his buddy said, don't worry, we got it. They ran down to lost and found. Well, that was the only pair of shorts they could find. And he rolled with it. And I, I started immediately to say, why didn't you call me? Right? That was my first reaction was, why didn't you call me? And I... Kind of bit my tongue on you know the why, and he was so proud of himself. It was a silly funny moment, but it was like a look of that sort of genuine, oh my gosh, you can't believe what happened, but i I did it, we fixed it, even if it was sort of a goofy, imperfect fix, and that's the kind of thing that had I been hit home, you should have called me, you should have called me. I would have you know circumvented that idea of problem solving and resilience right and critical thinking and working with his friends that happened organically from this. And he never, ever forgot his shorts again. Cause he really, really learned it himself, right? Not if there's a problem, I call mom and she fixes it.
1: What's your advice on how can we teach our kids to be good advocates for themselves? Tips on how to kind of instill that, Hey kiddo, you've got this. It's a delicate line of the push and the pull and the when to leave them alone and how to find that balance of, when you, they really need you to, you know, mm-hmm. this is especially when they're older. You know, I'm thinking yeah. when junior high, high school, when to step in, when to let them try to figure that out, and then when to be like, you know what, you've got this. I feel confident you've got it.
2: For sure. This has been a hard thing I've found in high school because you don't really know as much of what's going on. They have many different teachers. One of the things that I find so hard to get my head around is, you know, he has online textbooks. So it's not I can just sort of even see as he's working on his homework what he's working on quite the same way as back when we had textbooks and stuff. So it can feel very hard to get your head around it. And while Patrick, I think, has learned, and that was one of the benefits of sending him to Shelton School because they have such an intense focus on self-advocacy and understanding your learning differences and, in a broader sense, your strengths and weaknesses that we all have in our styles of how we learn. But there were times where he was starting to get overwhelmed, lost, drowning a little bit, anxious. And sometimes I wish I'd picked up on it sooner. Sometimes I feel like I was on it. Sometimes it was a series of conversations before we got to the heart of the matter. But I had to really advocate for him to self-advocate. And that's, have you spoken to the woman who's in charge of their learning resource center? Have you gone and talked to your teachers? Are you using the accommodations that have been provided for you? Why aren't you going down to the resource center to take the test in quiet? Or if it's so hard for you to take the notes the whole time, why aren't you talking to your teacher about other options? And so sometimes we had to prod him. And there were several times where we had to step in and say, we noticed he's starting to drown. Mm -hmm. And he seems really overwhelmed to us. We've asked him to come talk to you. Here's what we're noticing. What are you noticing? And so we usually try to do it alongside of him, but to still insist that he have those conversations himself as well.
1: I noticed that when reading the book in the beginning, I kind of want to go into parent guilt because you kind of touched on a yeah. little bit. You feel a little bit, oh, the guilt about is my child on the right schedule? Are they, you know, achieving the right things at the right time? Mm-hmm. Am I doing everything I can as a parent? And In the book, you've been very upfront about your son's learning differences yeah. and also, though, that his diagnosis came at the same time that you were recovering from thyroid yeah. cancer and the related health issues. Yeah. And, and he had, I just wanted to kind of hear your thoughts on just that internal battle of that period and just kind of what you took away from that and how you've grown from the experience in your parenting.
2: Yeah, I think that's when parenting is really hard when well, we're always trying to meet our own needs and our kids and our families. But when you're in a crisis, particularly a health crisis, but it could be something else. It could be like you're going through a divorce, or you lost your parents, or something like that. It can feel very difficult to take care of yourself and give your kids what they need. And some of us, oftentimes, parents sacrifice for their children, right? It's part of what we do, part of how we're probably hardwired biologically to some degree, but there's times where we have to put our own needs first in order to be well enough, functioning enough to do what we need to do as parents. And I think that can be very, very hard. And we have so much subconscious messaging that we've just, like, all the filters, all our lives of what it means to be a good mom or a good dad or a good parent, what it means to be succeeding, you know, whichever label we're looking at. And this is what I worry that some of what our kids struggle with, you know, what it means to be successful in high school. and, And that can be very hard. And I think parent guilt, mom guilt is real. Like, I, there's one study, and I can't think of off the top of head, that I mentioned in, in the book, didn't deal with it at all, where I think it was something ridiculous. Like 80% of moms were saying how, that they felt guilty all the time. You know, That may not be exactly right, but it was high. It was really high. Yeah, yeah. And that's really negative, right? That's constantly telling ourselves some sort of internal message of you're not good enough. You didn't do a good job. You should have. You didn't. You haven't. When are you going to... And energetically, that's very, very draining, and it's part of how we sometimes get ourselves stuck so I think guilt is real, but we have to really rewire it, and we have to be careful that some of the ways we talk about it in conversation, even sort of jokingly dramatic about things because we're feeding a certain messaging that most of us have absorbed and I've caught myself with graduation looming and this idea of transition of like, "Oh, I never did this and Oh, it's what if it's the last Easter and I didn't even decorate the house for Easter? <laughs> you know, Like silly, ridiculous things, right? But on some level of this idea of like, I didn't do it perfect. I wasn't every single possible thing. And so I think it's important to catch ourselves when it happens and just say, stop it. And one of the things is that same idea that I was saying before about kind of our eye on the bigger prize. One of the things I'll do in career coaching is, well, who do you want to be known for professionally? And I think that's the question, coaching question I'd ask as parents: What do you want your legacy to be? That every holiday was perfectly decorated, but you were uptight, <laughs> you know? Or you want to feel like you had calm, peaceful, long weekend with your kid? And and what ultimately is the gift you're trying to give to your kid about who they are and what it means to be to show up in the world? Is you know what's good.
1: We're going to take a short break to hear from our sponsors. This episode of the Girls That Create podcast is brought to you by the Girls That Create website, where we provide parenting resources for raising creative girls, while also encouraging greater female representation across the arts. Visit us at www.girlsthatcreate.com, where you'll find articles by some of our podcast guests, including Dr. Michelle Borba, Jessica Leahy, Renee Trudeau, and many more. You can also sign up for the Girls That Create newsletter at wwwgirlsetcreatecom slash newsletter. And we're back with Girls That Create on Word of Mom Radio. My guest today is Christine Hortzman, author of Deal With It Doll, Coaching Yourself Through Crisis. I appreciate it in the book that you mentioned it's okay to have find, if you need to, find a private space yeah. to have a good cry, but that's okay. Yeah. So we need to remember to be kind to ourselves and understand we just sometimes have to let it out and then... Yeah. yeah.
2: And I think that's one of the hard things, especially when you have younger kids, right? And when they get older and they're driving and some of their after school, you don't have to be at everything. You have a little bit more space again, especially when the kids are little. That was, what was hard. I was struggling when he was really little and he's around all the time. And in moments where like I feel it, like I just need to cry and let it out. I was stuffing it back in because oh, no, I got to recover and make dinner or whatever it was, and that's unhealthy, right? I mean, sometimes we have to suck it up in a moment, but if you're doing that over and over and repressing your own emotions and not making space, it's going to come back to bite you because emotions always come back out, and usually in a less healthy way. So I think it's important to give yourself grace, and our bigger goal is to teach our children how to name their emotions, process them, and regulate. And sometimes we have to sort of, I think I've the a like, Give ourselves a timeout and let our kids know we need a timeout. It's okay to take a bath in the afternoon. It's okay to read a book. You're allowed to do nothing on a Saturday,
1: mm-hmm. you know? I noticed too then that you mentioned that you kind of turned to journaling. Mm-hmm. Was writing it was was for you very therapeutic when kind of dealing with your stress and all the challenges you were having, mm-hmm. especially when he was younger. And I just wanted to hear your comments just like about how that process helped you and why you think it's so valuable to basically put the thoughts and feelings yeah. on the page.
2: Yeah, you know, off and on my whole life. I kept a journal, and I've never been like, as if I did it every single day. Usually, kind of ebbs and flows or goes in waves. But I think it's helpful to be able to reflect back when you see it. You see your own growth. You see certain patterns, and sometimes you even forget yourself a little bit, right? You almost forget, like, God, that's what it felt like to be in college or or what have you. But most importantly, even if you're we to write it down and burn it, the process of putting pen to paper of writing is organizing. It allows us to dump it out and process it in a space that I think is healthy and safe. And so I think that it can be very clarifying and edifying and organizing. And there's a lot of studies about writing by hand. And actually this is something that Shelton did where my son went to school. He has dyslexia, dysgraphia, and they taught children to learn in cursive because it's a different motor planning and we know that kinesthetically, things go into your working memory differently when we write by hand. So also, if you use the writing process to contextualize and reframe and bring yourself out the other side, increases your resilience muscle, but it also helps to start to rewire the thought process in a more positive or future-focused feeling of control. I think, too, um, even
1: if you're not a writer, you could even have a journal that you're just drawing and doodling in. Oh, my gosh, yes, this doesn't have
2: to be. Yeah, this doesn't have to be I'm going to write a novel one day or where my writing turned out with writing a book. It literally could be mind mapping, to your point, drawing, doodling, just lists of words and random thoughts. I mean, this is free form. It's for you. It's for you. I would just encourage everyone to be non-judgmental with themselves initially, let it out, whatever needs to come out, come out, then you can analyze and reframe.
1: I want to change roads, change streets, <laughs> change direction. I want to talk about encouraging your child's interest. In the book, <clears throat> you hear about your son no longer wanting to play basketball. And that I connected with that because obviously with Girls That Create, we focus a lot on kiddos who are interested in girls specifically, but who want to go pursue passions in the arts.
0: Yeah. I
1: have the same idea of you know what you may have a child come home one day and be like I don't want to paint anymore and as a parent you almost feel that you're really good at it or I no longer yes. play instruments oh but you're an orchestra and you're really good your first chair I mean there's so many there right. and I and, you know I saw the similarities there um, and yeah. I just to hear your um, you know share your family's experience with basketball though and that mm-hmm. idea of a child has. You know, as a parent, you put time, effort, yeah, balance there, but suddenly they're not for me anymore. And how do you move on as a parent from that? Their realization, and you're kind of like, oh, I thought we were going to be doing this at least through the rest of high school, and we're not. Yeah,
2: yeah, and I, yeah, I think a lot of parents can relate to that because there's something that most kids pick up and put down at some point, and there is this feeling of like, this is what we worked so hard for, and there's truth to that, but then that's when we have to remember. So we only go so far. It's about them and their journey and we're guides on the journey. So for us, we had to be really honest with ourselves. I think that's what helped us process it and not get into a power struggle. My, you know, Every kid's different personality-wise, birth order, all those different pieces. But we've never, ever really had a lot of power struggles with him. This isn't that kind of kid, right? And so I thought, well, I've never engaged in a power struggle with him. And why am I going to start now? And it took a lot for him to advocate for himself. It took a while for him to work up the courage. And he had dropped some different hints that we weren't very receptive to, where we were kind of pushing back. So it took a lot for him to say this. And so I first felt like I had to kind of honor that, you know, that it made him a little nervous to – had to work up the courage to have the conversation. So we wanted to honor that. And then we had to be honest that we were disappointed. We were sad that it shifted how we were going to interact and engage with his high school experience. So he also ran cross country and track, and we liked that he had a sport all year long, felt like that was good for him, healthy for him, kept him busy. So that sort of shifted that. And then, you know, watching cross country and track is fun and we've enjoyed it, but it's not the same as like being in the high school gym and cheer is there and the drill team's performing and there's just, you know, students and parents and that feeling of community and camaraderie that we're like, oh, we don't get that now. Just as it's really getting good, just as you're going to be varsity and, and those kinds of pieces. And then we had to just admit it. You know, we're sad about it. We're disappointed. But that's our need, not his need. And we have to honor his needs. And to his credit, he explored music, which is what he said he wanted to do. We were doubtful, like, oh, is he going to use his time productively? Is he going to be constructive? And he has, and in fact, It took us, even from the last time that we talked, on a different journey as well. My dyslexic son started reading like crazy and just going down some different little holes of read one book, curious about something else. He started reading, like, everything I read as a freshman and sophomore in my poli-sci major, just on his own. So he explored his music, started a band, and he started reading these books that now that's what he's talking about. His college visits. That's what got him into an honors program. It's not the things that I thought I would maybe need to check off the list for him. So I would just encourage parents have a little faith, you know, and not let some of the process unfolds organically. Good things are still going to come from it. They are going to find their way.
1: And there has to be the space there to allow that exploration. That's yes. The space.
2: Yeah. That's where they need a little downtime. They need a little boredom. And to be honest, you know, he was in bands when he was little when he learned bass guitar. He quit that. And that's what he picked back up in high school and taught himself to play the bass again. So sometimes that hobby or the interest, like the art or the music or whatever it is that you think they're not going to do again, they will find it again.
1: Obviously, you know, as we've mentioned several times, we don't want to micromanage our kids. But yeah. it wasn't for them. Yeah, um, And I would love to just, you know, As parents, you know we can kind of have we all. I mean, life is phases, right? So even parenting, we're going to have times where we're going to fill out a sorts with our kids.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, Of course, we all know that happens more as we enter the junior high, high school phase. What do you have for reestablishing for parents reestablishing that connection with their kiddos when they're kind of you kind of look up and you're like, you know what? I'm not feeling we're in sync right now at all. Not even a little bit. We kind of need to get you know I need to kind of do a check in.
2: I think my biggest lesson, and I, I, we have felt this, my husband and I have talked about it a lot, we've both felt this, you know, sometimes that distance, maybe even feels like a cold shoulder. Sometimes it's more hostile than that, right? But I also feel like it gets hostile when you start to get into the power struggle or a little too needy as the parent of wanting to hold on to what was. And we all sympathize and empathize with that feeling of disconnection for me, I had to try and, again, take a long view of this is developmentally appropriate. <laughs> this is what they're supposed to be doing. You know, sometimes we read a lot of parenting books when they're little, and we kind of think, oh, now we got this, you know, our kid. And we're not quite reading as many of the parenting books in middle school or high school until then. We feel maybe desperate. I don't know. But just that it's developmentally appropriate for them to pull away, to prioritize their own space and their friendships. I think the biggest thing is – just being around. I, I thought back a lot to my relationship with my mother and thought, what what was the foundational piece? What gave me the most comfort, if you will, even in time periods where I, maybe I wasn't even being honest with my parents about what was going on or et cetera? And it was just that she was always there. My dad, too, but my mom was at home. So there was a little more of she was always there feeling, I guess. And while I'm working and other parents are working and juggling, I think as much as you can just sort of make space and hold space and be around. And sometimes I do think you have to demand it. I think a little forced family fun time. I think we do have to demand it and let them know it's part of being a family. And they want it and need it more than they think they do. Not all the time, but on a somewhat regular basis. And then I think you have to be creative too a little bit. I started uh, doing young men's service League with Patrick because I felt that feeling of like we don't have as much in common. You know, he and his dad sort of still went to a lot of concerts and stuff together. But I was like, what do we have in common now that you know I'm not playing with him like he was little so volunteering together. We weren't even always doing everything exactly together. But it was a shared experience and it was a way of passing on my values of what I think is important as a human and as building community. And I think that ended up being a powerful experience for him. So get a little bit creative. Don't give up. Just remember that it's part of it. And also, you and know, I talked before about assertive communication. And I think this is an area where parents probably can get better in practice. And I know even for me who focus on communication training a lot, you know, don't ask closed-ended questions. Oh, did you finish your homework? Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, that went nowhere, and now I've got to come up with another excuse of why I'm in your bedroom, right? Think open-ended questions and to use eye language. I'm feeling disappointed we haven't spent much time together as a family, right? Name your own emotions. Name what you'd like to see. I'd love for us to all go on a hike in the next month. Can you pick out a Saturday when you're free? you know, to use assertive communication to model healthy communication with our kids and invite them into that with us.
1: Can you expand on the belief that acceptance is the greatest gift that you can give mm-hmm. a child?
2: Yeah, I think that home has to be a safe space. And I think that this is harder for parents now. We have a, a virtual world, right, and things like sci- not even just cyberbullying, but low-key, low-level Everyone's doing something that I'm not included in or their family affords to do things that we can't afford, you know, all these kind of comparisons, right? So I think that home being a place where your kid feels loved just because they are them and they exist in this world is the most important gift we can give our child. In junior high and high school and even into college, you're trying on identity That, again, is natural. That is a part of figuring out who they are, finding their people, if you will, and to just kind of ride, surf a little bit, ride some of those waves and to allow them space to explore and just to know that they're loved unconditionally. I think, to me, that's where I think a lot about our our achievement-oriented culture, how scheduled our kids are. Just like we're talking about mom guilt, I think our kids have this self um, subconscious I guess dialogue again what it means what they're supposed to be to make other people happy or what it looks like in a movie to be in high school or whatever it is and we just need them to feel safe that they're enough that they're just enough at the end of each book
1: chapter you share mantras and a space for journaling why did mm-hmm. you just include those for your readers
2: Yes, I wanted this book to be a tool in and of itself, and within the book, I wanted there to be lots of tools, and some would resonate with some people more than others, and again, for me, journaling was powerful. I really believe in that process of getting it out a little bit, and I hoped to encourage people to interact with the material and just, you know, make a note jot something down and have a place to come to. And that while the book functions as I can read, it starts to cover and there's themes running throughout. I could also just open it up to the parenting chapter because that's what's on my mind and just kind of spend a little time with it that day, even if I have not read the whole book yet or it's been a while or something like that. So I just wanted to create that space and coaching as a professional coach, coaching is about asking questions. And so I wanted to open up that process of coaching ourselves, of thinking through the questions, whether you jot it down or you just think it through, talk it out with a friend, mull it over, whatever it is. So I wanted to have that space in there for some of those questions to think about and just place for your own reflection.
1: And I know in the podcast we've talked a lot about parenting, but I do want to make sure everyone understands that the book is for anyone, that there is a chapter in there pretty much you will find a yeah. lot kind of use in, your, in the book of um, no matter what phase of life you're in right now.
2: Yeah, and that's one of the things I, you know, with that line about that's the one thing we all have in common as humans is that we're someone's child, right? And I do think a lot of the work we do as adults is processing all this messaging we've picked up and saying, how am I measuring my life and what are the standards of success I want to create for myself? And some things are. I want to hold on to what I was taught, and some things I'm ready to shed or reframe from my own self and where I am in life. And so I think that parenting chapter, I was hoping to just encourage people to also kind of revisit our own messages about our own identity.
1: No, it definitely does that. If you could go back to your younger self and give a piece of advice, what would you share with her if you could go back when you were 20 years ago?
2: Yeah, oh my gosh, I would stop the obsessive thinking. I did a lot of work, like, you know, in therapy and stuff on curbing negative self-talk, but I definitely am less so now because I've done a lot of work. And then my coach training kind of reinforced what I had worked on, but rumination, rumination, reflection, healthy and important, but rumination is not. Rumination is that looping, looping, looping. And oftentimes we're looping because we haven't gone deep enough to say, what is that message I'm comparing myself to and to turn it around? And I think it's really dangerous. And I think, again, I'm not really, a, you know, the mental health expert to analyze the CDC report, but I've just been so taken by it in our exchange and the, the state of our kids and having a high schooler and seeing what he's been through and, like, every kid I know with the pandemic, et cetera – But I think that's part of the problem with social media is it promotes rumination, right, and this constant looping, comparing. And so I would just say, stop, let it go, right? And I wish I hadn't wasted so much time on stuff like that. It's a waste of energy. It's just flat out a waste of energy where you can put it into other more productive things to move your life forward and just be in the present moment.
1: That's excellent advice. Christine Horson, thank you for being with us on Girls That Create.
2: Thanks so much for having me and for speaking with you. To all
1: of you tuning in, thank you for joining us on Girls That Create on Word of Mom Radio. If there's a special girl or any kiddo in your life, think about ways you can make sure they feel loved and accepted and how you can help them become advocates for themselves. Here's our closing theme song by Smith Sisters and the Sunday Drivers. Till next time, this is Erin Prather-Stafford.
0: Sure. She is your sure. She is-